0: need to read it for Romans 8 1. Who wants to do it? Ooh, who hasn't done one in a while? Uh, Mason. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Go ahead. Okay, I'm not there (laughs) yet. Bro. Oh, I got it. it. Uh, There is therefore. Stop! All right. We've been covering rules of Bible study on Sundays now for about seven weeks. And what I'm about to say is not really an official rule. It's more like an unspoken, unofficial rule. You kind of say it's my rule. But whenever you come across a word that says "therefore," you need to stop and consider why it's there for. Uh. Come on, drummer. What, you mean what? Huh? You mean what is therefore, not why it's therefore? What? What would the proper grammar be if it was if I said why? You did say why. I know, so what's the proper grammar if I didn't say it right? What it's there for. But I wanted to say why. Because I'm not wanting to know what it's there for, I'm wanting to know why it's there for. Anywho, we need to look at what it's there for. And that's a great place to do a review. So, we've been looking at the book of Romans as a whole and how we've seen that it's God's playbook for righteousness, alright? You want to know what it's like to be right with God? You want to know what it means to be right with God? Romans is the book. Paul starts this whole thing out, and he really breaks it down so far from what we've seen in three components. We're actually closing part three, I guess, you, if you would, about our, our study so far. But first things first, he covers what is righteousness to the sinner? Chapters 1 through 3, we've covered this extensively. You can go back to the podcast if you weren't here for it. And he talks about in chapters 1 through 3, how does righteousness relate to the sinner? Any questions? we sure I hear some gobbledygook, as our president would say? (laughs) Next. After he covers chapters 1 through 3 and how righteousness applies to the sinner, he then points the way to... The Savior, And we talked about this extensively in chapters 4 to 5 of the book of Romans. And how righteousness cannot come by the law. Righteousness cannot come from doing good works because you're flawed. You're a sinner. It could have only come through a perfectly righteous Savior. That is how we have a chance, a shot, if you will, at getting to heaven is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed or put onto our account when we choose to receive Him by faith. And then a couple weeks ago, we entered into this third phase of how righteousness applies not just to the sinner, not just to the Savior, but to the saint. That might be a strange word to some of you guys, but really, the saint, a saint is actually a biblical word. You know what a saint is? Just anyone who's by faith received Jesus Christ and His offering on the cross as payment for your sins. The Bible says that you are a saint, you're a believer. And so what's funny about that, and we've talked about this again for the last couple weeks, chapters 6, 7, and 8 are not talking about how to get saved. That was the first five chapters, specifically chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 are all about the Christian after he's been saved. And man, oh man, is that going to come into play tonight with chapter 8. So we talk about this whole entire thing about righteousness. And really, if you wanted to break it down, I like things that alliterate because it's easy for me to remember. If you want a simple outline, if you wanted to jot these notes in your Bible, chapters 1 through 3, righteousness to the sinner. 4 to 5, righteousness through the Savior. Chapters 6 through 8, the righteousness of the saint. How does it apply to them? Because those are the main peoples. Those are the main characters of those chapters. And so, in light of the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation, Mason, continue reading verse 1. Okay. Uh, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And what's he doing right there in verse 1? Merely just summarizing what we've talked about the last two weeks with chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapter 6, talking about the Christian, he's dead to sin. The eternal consequences of sin, man, you are set free from that. You are no longer condemned. You are no longer going to pay the price, eternally speaking, for the poor decisions that you and I might make because you are, where's your position? What did we learn in chapter 6? You are in where? In Christ. And not only that, but in chapter 7 we saw that man Even though we are free from the power of sin, we're also free from the power of the law. You don't have to obey God. Do you realize that? You do not have to obey God. He wants you to. Now, again, that's kind of a little trick question. If you want love, joy, peace in your life, uh, yeah, you do have to obey God. But you realize that this whole thing about being saved, this whole thing about being righteous, it is no longer a religion. It is no longer about rules and rituals and all of these other things. It is about a relationship now. You get to walk with Him. Picking up on your outline here in the introduction, verse 1 is just a a monumental capstone of a verse. But before we go any further in the chapter here, the introduction, we're approaching halftime in our study of the book of Romans. Whereas some teams seek to run the clock out before the half, like Maslin embarrassingly did to Perry a week ago, God instead chooses to run the ball of the end zone in chapter 8. What do I mean by that? What we're about to study is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. I mean, chapter 8 is huge. There's going to be a lot that we have to cover, but man, understand that everything pertaining to it It's gold. This chapter details our birthrights as Christians now that we are, fill in the blank, in Christ. If you could really put a a title or a summary on chapter 8, if you wanted to put a headline right above chapter 8 in your Bible, it's the title of today's message, The Privileges and Promises of Being a Son of God. Follow along with me in verse 2. There is therefore now no condemnation, Mason read that in verse 1, to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, you you think you can get to heaven by obeying the Ten Commandments by being good? You can't do it. The law can't do it. In that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. How did He do that? How did Jesus Christ condemn sin in the flesh? He did what you and I couldn't do. And what did He do? Before that even. He never sinned. He was a perfect man because He was God in human flesh. That's how He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4 that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Point one on your outline. Ugh. Oh, oh, I almost thought about, I debated showing a clip from this movie on this. Every man needs to watch Braveheart. I don't care what you say about Gladiator this or any other modern war movie. They all pale in comparison to the monumental epic that is Braveheart. And it might have something to do with the skit that we're going to be filming in the next two days. But that aside, there's a a phrase in Braveheart. If those of you guys don't know, it's about the, the Scottish fight for independence during the 1300s. And there was a man, just a typical commoner. He was a nobody named William Wallace. And he was able to rally up his troops of Scotland to fight against the tyrannical British government. And he did this major speech in that movie. Whether or not he actually said it or not, that's up to legend. But he talks about how so many of them, they wanted to run and they wanted to be cowards. They didn't want to fight the British because they were outnumbered, because they were weaker, they were smaller. They didn't have an organized army like the British did, who were the known rulers of the empire during the day. They didn't think they could do it, so they were going to run away. They they would rather live in bondage as slaves to Britain rather than possibly lose their lives in battle. So William Wallace, he's challenging them. He's trying to spur them on to fight. And he's like, yeah, sure, run, and you'll live. But how long? And when you are old men dying in your bed years from now, would you be willing to trade all of those years from this day to that to come back here to the battlefield and to tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom? Then they all start cheering together. No, you guys were all supposed to go, yeah, and then we were all supposed to storm together. (laughs) I'm a sucker. What can I say? That's point number one, because really, that's the gist of what we're going to talk about here for these next 25 verses. The fact that it's on your outline. Oh, okay. Your life might get taken away from you, but you'll have you have freedom right now that no one can strip from you. We just read about it. You are free from the law of sin and death. Look at letter A on your outline. Again, the title of tonight's message is Privileges and Promises throughout this entire chapter. And what makes this such a monumental chapter for Christians is that there are so many privileges and so many promises that God details for you that you can take to the bank that when you're having a rainy day and you're having, uh, being depressed and nothing's going your way and she stopped talking to you and he's not looking at you again and you have your friends who don't want anything to do with you until they're friends with you again next week but you're fighting right now, so you have to be mean back to them. Whatever you're going through that's making you have a rainy day, Romans 8 has the pick-me-up you need. The privileges and promises to remind you of who you are in Christ. And he starts here with this privilege in letter A. You are free to pursue after God all the days of your life. Do you realize that before You came to the point of decision where you chose to call upon Christ as your Savior. Do you realize that before that you had no choice? You were a slave to sin. You were in bondage to the enemy of England. You were a slave to sin. But now that you are in Christ, now that you've called upon Him to save you, having realized that I am a sinner, and realizing your need for a Savior, when you by faith... Called upon Him to save you, God justified you, declared you not guilty, and you became a saint of God. Now that you have that, you have freedom to pursue after Him all the days of your life. And we just read the first four verses. Look at sub-point one on there. The promise that comes with this. What we just read in those first four verses says that you are eternally free from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Well, that's the penalty of sin. Because you know what sin brought to you? Death, eternal separation from God in a place that He never designed for you to go to. A place called hell. You're free of the condemnation. You're free from the penalty of sin. Verse 2, you're free from the, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. That's the power of sin. Power of sin kept you in bondage, kept you from, feeling, er, from achieving your full potential in walking with Christ. And then verses 3 and 4 we just read, that's talking about the presence of sin. You now can walk in the Spirit. But, and I'm still on sub-point 1 in your outline, there are still consequences to walking after the flesh. You know what I found interesting? And I didn't know that until I, I started studying that this week. Do you know that in most modern Bibles today, the second half of verse 1 completely removes who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit? It's completely removed. Most modern Bibles, they just stop after there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And the reason why that's a big deal is because they're missing the systematic outline that God has orchestrated in the book of Romans. I've kind of teased this in the last couple of weeks, but the reason why Romans is such a monarch of books is because Paul has wrote his dissertation of all of the major teachings of the Christian faith, and he's outlined it in a very specific, systematic way in the book of Romans. I mean, again, look at the order and the flow of this. How it's orderly, how it's structured. You don't have to compare Scripture to Scripture and go out of order with things. No, it's very, very structured and organized. Any single one of you in this room can sit down with somebody else and walk them through the teachings and the doctrines of the Bible just by going based upon these outlines and maybe implementing a few of the rules of Bible study we're talking about on Sunday mornings. Anybody in this room can do that. It's easy. It's simple. That's one of the reasons I wanted these two studies to go hand in hand. It's called systematic theology. It's the the systematic way that God has organized the doctrines of the Bible. And why this is so huge is because scholars and Bible critics thought that that second half of the verse 1 didn't need to be in there so that it wouldn't confuse people about being eternally secure or not. When all they had to do was just read their Bible, and they'd see in Romans chapter 6, as we covered two weeks ago, that once you are dead to the body of sin... You have been placed in Christ. That body has no more power over you. You can't lose your salvation. It's the picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He that died, he died unto sin once, and he rose to walk in newness of life. He dieth no more. There's no more offering of sin to be made. We talked about that two weeks ago. However, keeping in mind that he starts this verse off, verse 1, with, Therefore it jogs our memory back to last week when we were talking in chapter 7 about even though I'm dead to the eternal consequences of sin I can't lose my salvation I'm still stuck in this body of flesh that wants to take back control of the throne of my heart every single day and if I choose to not walk in the spirit if I choose to not walk with Christ now that I have the freedom to do so, and I choose to go back to my old way of living, my old way of thinking, my old lifestyle, there's going to be consequences temporarily. That's why it's so key that that's here. If you decide to walk after the flesh because, hey, there's no condemnation. I'm in Christ Jesus. I'm never going to go to hell, so I can do whatever I want you are going to be sorely mistaken. He mentions in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 9, be not deceived. Okay, when you see a verse like that, do you think maybe your ear should perk up? Yeah, because what he's about to say is very, very key. God is not mocked. You mock him when you decide to take the salvation he's given you and you choose to live your own life the way you want to. You're mocking him. And God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also what? Reap. Reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap what? Corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Those passages should scare the living daylights out of you. They do me. I've seen pastors teachers, godly men quote these passages, and then a secret sin that they harbored for years ends up coming to the surface, and they end up falling from the grace that they once stood in. Not meaning they lost salvation, just means that God's not really as active in their life anymore. Happened all the time in high school. But he that soth the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. In other words, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're obeying Jesus Christ, and not going back to the former things that you were on the other side of your salvation, keep it up. Keep it up. It's not for nothing. I know it feels like it, especially during this time of the year when you're completely immersed in the school year, when you're completely immersed in all the extracurricular activities you're in. Like I said, it's hard remembering those camp commitments. It's hard to remember, goodness, do I really still feel the same way that I did then? Speaking of which, I haven't really reached out to the people who asked me to hold them accountable. I should probably do that this week. There are consequences when you choose to live in the flesh. Temporary, not eternal, but there are still consequences. Don't squander the promises that you have. Look at point two. What we're going to see next in a couple verses is that every Christian is either pursuing God or they're pursuing self. I wanted to have you guys turn here, but for the sake of time, we don't. I've mentioned these passages again and again too, and these are concrete passages that are life passages for me, and I hope they are for you, especially when it relates to this whole idea of you realizing that you are a dead man and that Jesus Christ wants to live his life through you. These passages are elemental and they go along with that. Psalm 42 talks about hungering and thirsting after the Lord as a deer does the water brooks. Does your soul long after him the way that a thirsty deer does? Cool drink of water from a river. Psalm 63, verse 8 says, My soul, who I really am deep down inside, not what everybody sees on me on the outside, no, who I am in Christ on the inside, my soul followeth hard after thee. It's a pursuit. Are you pursuing Him? I mean, are you chasing after Him? Are you seeking Him with everything you have? Because you have the freedom to do so now. You don't have to read your Bible. You get to. And you get to pursue after Him and chase after Him and seek Him. And you have all of the riches of wisdom found in this book at your very fingertips if you'll just but take the time to pursue after Him with everything you have. There's no third choice. You're either pursuing Him or you're pursuing self. You know what Proverbs 18.2 says? I love it. I don't love it, but I love that God puts this in there. He says that a fool hath no understanding except that his heart may discover itself. That's college in a nutshell. I want to go off to college so that I can discover myself. I want to go travel the world so that I can discover myself, so I can know who the real me is. Bible says in Proverbs eighteen two that when you're pursuing after that, it's foolish. You know who you are? Your identity is found right here in Christ. Look at verse 5. For they that are after... Again, that's why we say the word pursuing. You're going after something. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, getting after it, They mind the things of the Spirit. Bullet point on your outline. What has your walk been like as of late? Cover that last week. Galatians 5. You're either bringing forth fruit of the flesh, or you're bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. What's your walk been like? Look at verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. That means you're saved, but you still mind earthly things. You still think and act and talk the way you did when you were lost. That's what it means to be carnally minded. To be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That word enmity means division. It means it is hostile against. Your carnal mind, a mind that seeks to live the way that you did before you were saved, it's hostile against God. It is in division and against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Second bullet point. What gets your thoughts? Speaking of this division, James 4.4 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Yikes, that's tough words to a Christian. Know ye not that friendship of the world, meaning this world system, how this world looks, how this world talks, How this world influences you and how you want to be like it, friendship with that is, not like, no, is enmity with God. If you're a friend of this world, you are hostile with God. You are in division with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's why that word is so closely linked with enmity. Not only that, you're called an adulterer, adulteress, because you're committing spiritual fornication against your husband, Jesus Christ. Some pretty bold and tough words. What are you pursuing after? Look at verse 8. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now you might want to mark this note down, because there is a difference between someone who is after the flesh That's a phrase that we've shown up in the last eight verses. Who walk not after the flesh. There's a difference between walking after the flesh and being in the flesh. Remind me again, if you're in here and you're saved, you've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. uh, What position are you in? In You're in Christ. Are you in the flesh? No, because from God's viewpoint in Romans chapter (laughs) 6, that body's dead. You're not in the body. You're not in the flesh. So when you see here in verse 8, he's saying, so they that are in the flesh cannot please God. He's He's kind of switching gears here and talking about a lost person. Someone whose sins have not been purchased. Someone whose sins have not been justified. They're in the flesh. That means no lost person. None. I don't care how much good works they do, how much charity, how much they make the world a better place. They cannot please God. And he says in verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is what? None of his. This is crucial because there are certain churches that teach what's called baptismal regeneration. That's a false doctrine. The Bible is completely against it. If you have any doubts about that, just go back to Romans 4 and 5, and you'll see that clearly. What baptismal regeneration talks about is that, yeah, you might have a profession where you realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you might have a profession where you call upon Christ, but unless you don't get dunked in the water and get baptized, you're not going to receive the Spirit. Bible says in the book of Galatians that that is a false gospel. That is adding something to what the Bible says genuine salvation is. Because according to what this verse says here, hmm, if I don't have the Spirit, then I'm not His. So if I make a profession of faith, if I realize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and I call upon Christ to save me, I don't get saved unless I get baptized? What if I die in between then? What if the church schedules my baptism three weeks out from when I made the profession of faith? Am I not saved? You see why God calls that a false gospel in Galatians chapter 1? You're adding works. You're adding good works to the finished work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross as payment alone for your sins. Plus nothing, minus nothing. When we come to Him and we realize our need for a Savior, it's because we realize that He did what all the work on the cross for us. There's nothing possible that we could possibly bring that would even compare to the shed blood of the perfect, sinless, righteous God dying as a substitute in your stead. There's nothing we could bring to the table as an offering that would compare to that. It could have only come from Him. By faith, when we receive that gift, that is how we are justified. But if you don't have the Spirit, that passage is still true. You're none of His. So let me ask you this. Did you believe in vain when you made that profession of faith? Refer back to last week's lesson. Is there evidence that shows that you're saved? If so, what is it? If we called you up here right now and asked you to prove it, could you prove it? Man. And even though, to go back to verse 8, sorry for the theological hopscotch here, but to jump back to verse 8, when he says, so they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Yeah, he's talking about lost people here. But consider the context, because context is key. you think that if you're saved and you walk after the flesh, you're saved but you live as though you're lost, do you think that you're going to please God? The Bible says in the book of Psalms that if you regard iniquity in your heart, he's not even going to hear your prayers, let alone not be pleased with the way you're living. So the third bullet point point outline, do your ways please the Lord? Can anybody tell me what Hebrews eleven six 6 says? But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. If you're not walking by faith, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So faith is connected to the Word of God. Yeah, if you're not walking by faith in the Word of God, you're not going to please Him. Your ways aren't going to please Him. Look at verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Hey, are you feeling dead? Are you feeling worn out by the world and from all the crap going on at school? Then be quickened by pursuing after Him and spending time with Him. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. In other words, God doesn't expect you to do something for Him to earn salvation. No. For if ye live after the flesh, Christian, ye shall what? Anybody here want to play that kind of Russian roulette with God? Anybody here want to live thankful so much that Jesus Christ purchased my eternity? So thankful that He saved my soul. I'm just going to go on and look at things that I want to look at, talk to whoever I want to talk to, regardless of whether or not they're going to push me further and closer in my walk with Christ. Say the things that I want to say, regardless of whether or not it edifies other believers or not. Do things that I want to do because, hey, I have liberty in Christ. I'm free. Yeah, you are. But there might just come a point when God has enough. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Yeah, could mean physically, but one thing that is for sure. You live after the flesh, you'll kill your spiritual walk. You'll kill it. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So last bullet point, are you killing the spirits working in your life? Ephesians 4 on the screen here, having the understanding darkened, this is to a church by the way, and he's talking about other Christians having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Who? Being past feeling. Can you imagine sinning so much that you don't even feel anything anymore? You don't feel the conviction of God's Spirit inside of you telling you, Hey, that's wrong. Knock it off. Believe it or not, Christians get to this point in their life. Which is why, again, I reiterate what we did last week. Evaluate your life. Is there evidence that shows you're a Christian? If not, one of two things is happening. You have not the Spirit, so you are none of His. Or, you are past feeling of the Spirit's conviction because of all of the sin and the garbage you have allowed to run rampant within this temple that He's completely grieved and quenched. Ephesians 4.30 says, It's possible for you to grieve the Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about it being possible for you to quench, to put out the spirits working in your life. It's possible when you live and walk after the flesh. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, all kinds of evil, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Man, First Timothy 4.2 talks about it's like your conscience can be seared with a hot iron. Anybody here ever cook a, sca- a steak on a cast iron grill? Yeah. What does it mean to sear it? Get a, crust. Get a crust on it. You know what? What was once a tender piece of meat is now hardened. That can be your conscience when you choose to live like this. Mark it down. You are flirting with your very life. For sure your spiritual life, but maybe even your physical life. I've seen God take, not personally, but I know stories of God taking Christians out of this life because they walk after the flesh and not after the Spirit. James 1.15, if you want to write this passage down, it says that when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished. When sin has run its course through you, it bringeth forth death. And not only that, just Scan your eyes up to that first bullet, that first uh, point number one, that promise. You are squandering a promise that was given to you by the blood of Christ when you live like that. That is literally like spitting in, in Jesus' face. That is literally like whenever you go and do that sin or that the weights that easily beset you, it's like you're taking Him by the back of his head and just putting his face in the dirt saying thank you Jesus for your blood thank you for taking me to heaven this is my life now letter B another privilege you are free from the bondage of your past as you have been adopted by the Father look at verse 14 For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. I love that. Again, when you receive the Spirit of God, you don't receive the spirit of bondage. What does bondage mean? Think about Israel in the book of Exodus. They were once in bondage. They were once slaves to this world system. According to chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Romans, when you've been justified by faith, you're free from both of those things, sin and death. You're not going to receive the spirit of bondage again. You're not going to receive or lose your salvation. You're a son. But ye, verse 15, have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba. Father, That word Abba is called a transliteration, which means it's literally a Hebrew word that shows up in English just as is. You know what Abba means? It's the Hebrew word for saying daddy. When you got saved, one of the promises that God gave each and every single one of you is that though you were of your father the devil, the book of John says, he looked upon you and had mercy upon you and adopted you into His family and gives you a spirit that cries out to Him as though He is your Daddy. Not just holy, reverential, almighty Father. No. There are times where that's needed, especially when you've been walking after the flesh. No, this is a... I love it. Thankfully, thankfully, My boys are still at that age where they don't call me Dad. Although Ryder did. (laughs) Heather wasn't home the one day and Ryder did say, Where's Mom? It's like, "Mm, I'm going to hold off a couple days before I tell her that one. But it broke her heart. Thankfully, they still call me Daddy. And I'll tell you what, there's just nothing like it. That childlike faith of realizing that he has a need and he knows where to go to get it. That's what Jesus offers to you. Christian, when you have a need, you can crawl up into his lap. Remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at the the model of the temple and how a priest had all of these strong rituals that if he went in, he had these bells around his waist, and if he went in without any unconfessed sin, he could drop dead right there because he was going into the presence of God. So he had to have that holy, reverential, almighty father. No, we don't have to. We have that access to Him and we can go to Him about anything and He's going to have a listening ear for us. It's a privilege that you have been given. It is a privilege that is unlike any other time in human history and, and, we've been talking a lot about the past, but listen here, it is unlike any time that will happen after this. This 2,000 year parenthesis called the church that you and I live in you have been given so many privileges and promises of God that is unlike anything any people group have gotten before or after the church and we as a church whole are squandering it just read revelation chapter 3 verses 14 to 22 to find that out It's a description of the day and age in which we live in. Just read 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a description of the day and age in which we're living in. Where men are lovers of their own selves. You know what one word summarizes that? To be a lover of your own self. A narcissist. You want to do an interesting Google search tonight? Just do a Google search on narcissism and social media use and you'll find a pretty interesting direct correlation that scientists and doctors have found. And it's the very first character trait that God lists in 2 Timothy 3 about a description of this day and age. The last days. Man. Where are we at? Did I finish? No. Verse 16. The Spirit itself, capital S, beareth witness with our lowercase spirit, that we are the children of God. In other words, if you're saved, you'll know it because His Spirit will confirm it with your spirit, who you are inside. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Who can tell me what an heir is? Not heir Jordans, don't. it's not spelled the same. What's an heir? Huh? Oh what? Oh, not error. How it's spelled in the passage we just read, bro. That's I would direct you to reread the first twelve verses of Romans eight then. Yeah, Jack. Someone who inherits something? Yeah! It's an error. It's it's an error. goodness, don't any of you guys pay attention to what's going on in England right now? <laughs> an heir to the throne no it's just called a newspaper if you're going to be that old school the queen the queen went to the th- well she no, she didn't go to the throne she went to a different throne well sorry she didn't have a salvation testimony she went on and now Charles her son was the heir to the throne to rule now God the father has a son whose name is what That wasn't a Sunday school trick question. Yes, it is Jesus. And He, one day, in Jerusalem, is going to rule and reign as King because He is the heir to the throne. But do you realize what we just read? That since you are a son of God, you have been adopted into the family of God. Look what it says about you. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Do you realize that means? Like in Revelation 5.10 says that you and I are going to rule and reign with Christ in the future one day? That is an incredible privilege that you have. That is a promise of God. Because you've been adopted by the Father into His family. There are several people in this ministry right now and even connected with this ministry that have been adopted. Man, I'll tell you what, they got, they got a one-up on us. They get to experience a privilege more personally. They have a closer connection and a realization to this privilege than most of us who grew up in good homes. They get to understand just truly what it means to have someone who is not your birth parent love you more than your birth parent every single person in this world in this room was born a sinner and the bible says in the book of john that you were of your father the devil he's your birth parent And Jesus Christ looked upon you in your pitiful state and had mercy upon you. And He went to the cross and suffered and bled to pay the price for your sin so that He could adopt you into His family. If you're in here and you've been saved, you have that privilege. And yet there are times we treat Him like He's a stepfather. So letter B, privilege. You're free from the bondage of your past as you've been adopted by the Father. Point one. That gives us assurance of belonging, purpose, and an inheritance. If you're struggling with a place of belonging, if you're struggling with purpose as though you have no existence, I encourage you to spend some time rereading these three verses we just read. I love it. Galatians 4. He kind of talks about this point even further. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, there it is again, Abba Father, he's your daddy. Wherefore thou art no more a servant. The context of this passage is talking about being a servant or a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And of a son, and an heir of God through Christ. How be it then? When ye, oh, look how beautiful this verse is worded. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. You were your own God. You served other gods, whether you realized it or not, even if it was just self. But verse 9. But now, after that ye have known God, it's a relationship, but he corrects himself here. I love it. It's not so much that you know God, or rather, are known of God. You know that story where Christ is talking to the guys and uh, He shares the parable how... Well, it's not a parable. He says, no, on that day, many are going to stand before Me and say, Father, Father, did we not cast out devils in Thy name? Did we not do incredible good deeds and all these works? And Jesus is going to look at them and He says, depart from Me. I never knew you. He doesn't say, you didn't know me. No. That's why I love how Paul corrects himself here, but God kept it in the Bible. But now, after that, ye have known God, or rather, are known of God. Does God know you? How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? After you've been adopted into this wonderful family of Christ, why would you want to go back to the crap that you just came from? No one would rather do that. Not at all. Just talk with any of our friends in this room that are in this ministry that have been adopted. He gives assurance, belonging, purpose, and an inheritance but we must suffer in this body of flesh until we finally go home. See it's kind of like even though Romans chapter six is talking about how we're dead to this body eternally the consequences of this body and this sin it has no eternal consequences on it to us anymore because we've been justified, but we're still in this flesh, and it gives us issues every single day of our lives. chapter seven. Kind of like that, this is also the same thing. We've been adopted spiritually, but the adoption process isn't complete yet. And here's where he goes on to talk about that. Look at verse 17b, or the second half of verse 17, rather. So we're children, we're heirs, we're heirs of God, we're joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also that we may be also glorified together. He's going to go on to talk about the body, the glorified body, a sinless, perfect body that we're going to receive one day. But man, check out verse 18. For I reckon, he added up the facts, and here's his conclusion, that the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, for those of you in this room where life is peachy keen and nothing's going wrong whatsoever, probably, not necessarily the case, but probably because you're walking after the flesh, that verse doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But for those of you who've lost friends because you've been carrying your Bible to school, Those of you who have lost friends because you're not hanging out with them anymore because of the way that they've talked or the things that they do, it's causing you to want to go back to living that way, the way that you were before camp, the way that you were before salvation, the way that you were before you decided to get serious about your walk with God. That pain and that rejection and that feeling of isolation and loneliness, how nobody wants to hang out with you, those types of sufferings, let that verse be sunk deep into your heart and meditate and memorize that bad boy. It'll get you through a lot of hard times. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, whatever you're going through, whatever it is, home life a mess? School a mess? Is your brain a mess? Are you constantly at odds with yourself fighting a battle that nobody else knows about? I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us the moment you're standing before your King, your Savior, in a body that will never again sin against Him, that will never again think an impure thought against Him, that will never again utter a word that is unpleasing to His sight. If you could wake up each and every single morning with this verse in mind, with that day in mind, it will make what you're suffering through a whole lot easier. I just wonder, are we suffering? Or have we kind of kicked the recliner back and coasted a little bit? Because suffering sucks. No one likes it when you're going through tough times. No one likes pain. No one likes it when friends don't want anything to do with you. So it's very, very easy just to go ahead and kick it in cruise control and let things go their way. I've already kind of determined this might be going as a two-weeker. I figured it might. You know why I love baseball? Sports are cool. I like basketball and football, but man, baseball, those other sports, you have a jersey. Baseball, you have what? Uniform. Uniform. A uniform. All you other sports, you got jerseys. No. Baseball's classy. Always has been. Anyways. Good, I made you gag. Anyways. I remember playing baseball all my life, came from a huge baseball family. My dad was my coach. My brother was a three-year starter on Perry's varsity team. And I really wanted hard to to be following in their footsteps. But, man, you know, when you're playing ball, some days you're just not feeling it. I know you guys can relate because there's sometimes you just don't want to go to cheer. You don't want to go to tennis. You don't want to go to football. There's just sometimes you're not feeling it. And I remember this one day particularly where after the first inning, I was just had a, a horrible attitude towards my teammates, had a horrible cockiness about me, and I remember my dad looked at my head coach and he said, Brian, bench him. His heart's not in it today. It's the first inning, which meant I had to sit on the bench in those stinking polyester uniforms, sweating, itchy, irritable. You know what's interesting? When you're out on the field, none of that stuff bothers you because you don't notice it. You'll get all tore up. You'll get holes in your pants from sliding into second and third. You'll get the dirt and the grime in your teeth. You got sweat, sometimes blood, if you, you know, get nicked or whatever, you know, coming down your face or whatever the case is. And man, what a feeling it was at the end of the game knowing whether you won or lost, man, I gave it my all. It's a completely other crappy feeling when you're sitting in a stinking crisp and clean uniform that is not dirtied or muddied up in pristine condition. You look at your teammates and you see everything that they went through. Again, win or loss. It's all over them. It's all over their uniform. They gave it their all. And I have so much energy in me, I'm ready to play a whole other seven innings. But I can't because the game's over. Many of you in here will get to heaven on that day, and you will have so much energy, ready to serve the Lord with everything that you stinking have, but we're going to be entering a thousand year honeymoon with our King, where it's going to be a time of rest, where there is going to be no more work, the game's over. You'll be having so much energy because your uniform on this life, in this earth, is going to be crisp and clean. No dirt, no mud. Because you sat the bench. Because you had a rotten heart attitude about serving God. And for a thousand years you will sit there having so much energy to serve. But you know the one thing you can't do in heaven? Witness. To a lost person, because there's not going to be any lost people there to minister to. So suffer now. Get dirty. Let it be that to whereas let it be to whereas you have exhausted all of your energy for Christ that you're going to need a thousand year honeymoon in the millennium just to recuperate. That verse used to mean a lot to me. And then somewhere along the way, when I got comfortable in the Christian life, I forgot about that verse. That verse has been coming back up in my life as of late. You see point two on your outline, we must suffer in this body of flesh until we finally go home. Look at verse 19. He says, For the earnest expectation of the creature, you're a new creature in Christ, Christian, the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God, meaning when you come before God and you have a a perfect body. If you want to take notes, you know what that phrase earnest expectation means? It's got a unique phraseology. It means neck out. Neck out. Someone tell me, 1 Corinthians 9, Hebrews chapter 12, what is the Christian life compared to? Or should I say, what sport is the Christian life compared to? It's not baseball, unfortunately. It's a race. (coughs) Whoops. I jumped ahead. Fellowship of his sufferings. Alright, where am I at here? Sorry, I did jump ahead a lot. We must suffer in this body of flesh until we finally go home. Christ suffered in the flesh. Matthew, Mark 14, 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. you know what the context is? He's about ready to go to the cross, and he doesn't want the cup of God's wrath poured upon him. So he cries out to his daddy for help. He's suffering right now. 1 Peter 4.13 But rejoice much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Paraphrase, embrace the suck. Paraphrase, get your uniform dirty. Don't sit the bench. For any of you that are feeling like you're suffering as a Christian right now, 1 Peter is a great book that deals with that. Again, whether it's suffering in the flesh with people or yourself, Read First Peter. You'll get blessed out of it. All right. Now that that's through, earnest ex- expectation, neck out, running a race. Wow, I'm off. <laughs> Scratch that. We'll come back to the race thing. Where am I at? Okay. First bullet point. I even had it highlighted as to which verse I was supposed to read first. I was. This was all supposed to come after verse 18 when I went off on that side tangent about baseball. Alright, we must suffer in the body of this flesh until we finally go home, that, first bullet point, we may receive the things done in the body at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 17 and 18, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11 are talking about the judgment seat of Christ. You guys realize that at the judgment seat, when we stand before God and give an account of our service to Him, we're going to be given crowns based upon our service? Here's one of them. Revelation 2.10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of what? Life. This is written to a church, the church in Smyrna, a church that was bitterly persecuted and suffered in the flesh they were given a crown of life. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Question, are these two crowns the same, or are they different? Because Revelation 2 says, Be faithful unto death. And this was a church that was bitterly persecuted and martyred. Some say that this crown is given to martyrs of the faith. But that phrase crown of life shows up in James 1.12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried or tested or suffering in the flesh, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. I say these two crowns are synonymous. Not just because they're both called the crown of life, but you know what? One here might be physical death. This here is death to self. When you choose to die to self, I want to give in to this temptation. I want to do that. I don't want to endure this trial. I want to give in. When you say no to that, you're dying to what your flesh wants to do. You're dying to what, to walking after the flesh. Bible says you get a crown of life. And not only that, he equates it with showing your love for your Savior. I wonder how many of us will get this crown at the judgment seat of Christ. Or if we're just going to have a crisp uniform and all this energy to serve. Okay, now imagine had I not told you guys about the racing analogy until right now. Because that's when this was supposed to come up. (laughs) So verse 19, this earnest expectation, that phrase means neck out. In Hebrews chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, our Christian life is equated to running a race. And when you reach the finish line, how many times have you seen this? How many of you runners have done this? Have you done this yet? No, No. next race, which is done, isn't it? Next year, buddy. No. (laughs) When you get to the finish line, you're trying to beat the other guy. You're trying to be the one who wins the race. It's an intense anticipation. In other words, that's what that phrase means. The earnest expectation of that day of seeing Christ face to face of getting this glorified body the manifestation of the sons of God, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, you were born into sin, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He's talking about the glorified body you're going to receive one day. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that all of mankind, all of creation was affected when Adam sinned. Lions and lambs laid down next to each other. When they sinned, that all went to pot. You had people killing each other. You had animals killing each other. You had the The world and its natural disasters trying to destroy us. All of creation is groaning for the day when sin is eradicated. When we get a glorified body and not only they, verse 23, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting. For what? For the adoption of, Well, I've already been adopted spiritually. Well, that's why he says, to wit, the redemption of our body. Yes, you have the Spirit of Christ living in you. Yes, at the moment of salvation, according to Romans 6, you were placed in Christ. You are spiritually adopted. The legal paperwork has gone through and you're adopted. But you ain't home yet. You're as good as belonging to the Father. You're not home yet. But you notice how He says that we, along with all of creation, groan for that day? Question. Do you? One day I'm going to do, it might be a one-week or a two-week, just one-off study on what heaven's going to be like. And I honestly wonder if the thought of it, what the Bible has to say, is going to bore the snot out of some of you. Can you imagine singing praises to God 24-7? If that sounds like a bore to you, I hope you're going to be there. What we're going to do in heaven for all of eternity is worship God. You know what God wants us to do now according to John chapter 4? Worship Him in spirit and in truth. You want Go ahead and read Revelation chapter 11 tonight before you go to bed and you'll see. Go ahead and read Revelation 4 and 5 too. You'll see what it is that we'll be doing for all of eternity. And if that sounds like a drag to you, I can't imagine what your worship is like here on this planet. But the point of those chapters, if you are excited for that day, what we do in those chapters, if you're going to read them tonight, is what He wants us to do right now. To get some skin in the game. To get our necks out across the finish line until we reach the finish line. And the more you suffer on this planet, the more that you, you're uncomfortable in this polyester uniform with the sweat and the dirt and the grime and your, your eye black running down your face. You guys still use eye black? Yeah, you did. Eye black running down your face, smearing down your face. The more that you suffer on this life, the more rewarding it's going to be when you get the adoption, the redemption of your body. Suffer now, rest later. We'll pick back up here next week, Romans chapter 8. I told you guys, this was a jam-packed chapter. We only got to a couple of the privileges and promises. Sorry things were a little scattered. Hopefully it still made sense to you guys. Be thankful for what you've been given from Christ. Let me just end with this too. We've given the gospel clearly tonight, but maybe you yourself have never come to that point of realization. Maybe, you're, maybe you've never seen the fact that you're a sinner and that no matter how much good that you've tried to level out against in your life, that it's never been enough to mount up to the shed blood of Christ dying on the cross. If our good works could amount and be considered enough to get us into heaven... Jesus Christ dying on the cross was the stupidest thing anyone could have ever done. Paraphrase, but that's what Galatians 2 21 says. If righteousness cometh by the law, good works, Christ is dead in vain. It was pointless for Him to go to the cross. Now, the reason He went to the cross is because you can't pay the price of your sins yourself. You might be suffering. You might be groaning for that day. But it's all in your flesh. Because you have not seen your need for a Savior. You've probably never even seen your need or yourself as a sinner. But if you want to be a saint of God, the Bible makes it very, very clear. That's by faith. We covered that in Romans 4 and 5. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. You must see your need for a Savior in light of what He did on the cross for you. And that even when you were a sinner, completely and totally and utterly in disregard for Him, He died for you. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe you're in here and you've heard me say those words thousands of times in this church every single week since you were four, five. And just like the last 3,700 times that you've heard it, it's meant nothing to you. Because you prayed a prayer once, and you're trusting in that prayer. But when you take an honest look at your life, there's something missing. My spirit inside of me does not bear witness with the capital S spirit that I belong to Him. I don't see any evidence that my life has been changed and that I'm a new creature. If that's the case, I submit to you that you believed in vain, as 1 Corinthians 15.2 says, and that you never genuinely gave your life to Christ. You have a moment now, as everyone bows their heads, as we go before the Lord in prayer, you have a moment right now that you can do that, in whichever camp you are, where you've never called upon the name of the Lord to save you, or you believed in vain. Either way, It's a simple prayer of faith, but you have to have faith. You have to believe it. You have to stake your entire eternity upon it. In a simple prayer of faith, you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins and rose again the third day, and I'm trusting Him with my eternity. And I call upon you now to save me. If you will do that, the Bible says that you will be adopted as an heir, a joint heir with Christ. You'll be a son of God. And Father, I do ask and pray that if anybody has further questions on that, that they would get with a leader tonight. Or they'd get with a friend tonight. Someone they know that they can talk to and they can trust. And they can talk with them about these things. But God, if they know something's wrong, they need to just go straight to You. So I pray that eternity would be ch- taking place. Eternity would be changing as we talk uh, right now. That salvation would take place. And maybe even there's people in here that they are walking after the flesh and they need to get right with You. God, I pray they would. Because time is short. We could be going home tonight with all of this energy built up in us to serve and be ready to suffer for Christ, given how much He suffered for us. But by then it will be too late. We'll be in heaven forever with all this energy to give and no one to minister to. So change our hearts and our minds on that tonight, Father. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.